If you'll take your Bible, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 6 this morning. Our study continues in Exodus. You'll remember last time the the Hebrew people, their situation went from from bad to worse. And in chapter 5, we examined four voices, the voice of God, the voice of Pharaoh, the voice of the foreman, and then we closed with the voice of Moses as Moses cried out to the Lord in prayer. And you'll remember, though it had lots of bitterness and sin in it, it, it was at least addressed in the right direction to the only one who could answer. So last week what we learned is that the Lord is at work on your behalf even when you don't see it. Today we explore another question. How can I be certain of God's help? God answers by saying, I am and I will. And so when we pick up at the start of chapter 6, remember we are hearing God's answer to Moses' prayer. In order to catch that, I'm going to read the ending of Moses' prayer in chapter 5, verse 22. O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now for the help and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We desire to know you as you are revealed in your word. And so we pray that you would give your people ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. And we ask, Father, that you would be willing to use an ordinary sinful crooked stick, a man like me, with words that must proceed 
I pray that my words would be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. I met Dr. Barber in a moment when I didn't really have a lot of hope. I'd already gone through one surgery with another doctor, and that doctor had been unable to treat and even diagnose my pain. And though I didn't at the time feel very optimistic, I didn't really have hope. I was actually a little more concerned about my finances. I was in year one of seminary, and so even if a doctor could diagnose the condition, if he could treat my pain, my insurance was pretty basic. And so I knew I didn't have a lot of money to take care of the condition. I didn't feel very certain that the condition would improve. But then sometimes there's moments in life when you meet a person and their character and their expertise actually assuages your fears. After my exam, after my tests with this doctor, Dr. Barber brought me into his office and he said two things that suddenly filled me with hope. Number one, he said, I see this kind of thing all the time, so I know exactly how to treat it. Well, Dr. Barber, I'm so encouraged to hear that. I need to let you know I'm in seminary, first year. I don't make a lot of money. And so he said, well, Eric, we won't let your finances get in the way of helping you get well. Two comments that filled me with hope. Now, to that point, I had been in so much pain that I had no sense that my condition would really improve. Then when I met Dr. Barber, I met a man of compassion, a man of tenderness, and he brought me comfort. But to be honest, it was his ability in the midst of my pain that actually gave me the most hope. I'm sure you've had experiences like this too. It doesn't matter whether it's a doctor who can treat you in the middle of pain or whether it's a plumber who arrives at your house when water is pouring all over your floor. Just meeting a person who is both willing and capable brings hope. And that's precisely why the Lord says what he says in chapter 6. He repeatedly says, I am Yahweh and I will handle the situation. I am and I will. This is God's way of introducing his character, but also introducing his capacity so that his enslaved people know there is hope. And so it is that your uncertainty about who he is is somewhat irrelevant. In fact, the Lord is not deterred by who you think he is or what you think he can do. His power doesn't wane based on your faith. He's going to accomplish the very salvation that he set out to accomplish. I wonder if some of you need to hear that today. Perhaps you need to be reminded about your own salvation and the fact that your present situation, uh, it, it doesn't matter how you feel about it or what you think about it. It only matters that there is a faithful God who stands over and above those circumstances. Some of you may be discouraged with your progress, your lack of growing in grace. God says, well, your feelings have no bearing on what I can do and what I will do based on who I am. Certainly true in the physical realm as we see in Exodus 6. It's also true in the spiritual realm. 
Thankfully, your hope doesn't depend on you. You see, for those in Christ, God's character secures your salvation. And so it's revealed in three ways in our text, God's power, God's promises, God's people. I think chapter 6 is really God's way of inviting us to examine God's character. When he says, I am the Lord, what does he mean? And then when he says, I will do this or do that, what does he mean? We start with God's power. Chapter 5 closes with that prayer of Moses, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you send me here? I came to Pharaoh, you still haven't done anything about it. And though we do find several things about that prayer that can be affirmed, you'll also find that Moses' attitude is, is certainly not free of, of sin. There's, there's bitterness, there's grumbling, there's complaining. And into that, the Lord answers with clarity. Look at verse 1. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Now, you remember that when the Egyptians spoke of their king's strength, they spoke of Pharaoh's hand or his arm as the image of power. That's how they bragged about their king. And God says, well, I'll use Pharaoh's arm his hand to reveal my power in two ways. You're going to witness it in the realm of control, but also in the realm of relationship. First, God's power in control. So if the Egyptians are to be impressed with the might of their king, God's people are going to see with their very own eyes God's deeds of power as he controls everything in the circumstances. Pharaoh's strong hand is going to be bent to do the will of God. Not only will Pharaoh allow you to worship, he's not only going to allow you to go out, he's actually going to send you out and happily. As a young child, I, I still remember trying to arm wrestle with my dad. He would put that arm up on the table and I would come not with one hand but two and then with the weight of my whole body I would try to push that one arm down. Probably like a lot of you, you remember your dad taking you and just simply moving your whole body beneath the weight of that hand. And as a child, you stand there and you're so impressed and amazed. Well, this is Pharaoh. Like a little child under the mighty hand of God, as the Lord's hand presses down the king's actions. And God says, you, my children, are going to stand in awe when I move this king that way. It's worth asking a question. Do you remember that why question that Moses asked? Did God ever answer that question? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Pharaoh keeps doing all this and you seem to be doing nothing? There's a little play on words that happens between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And it hinges on this phrase, do works. Pharaoh told the people, do your works, do your works, do your works. Moses said to God, you haven't yet done your works. Chapter 6, verse 1, God says, now you shall see what I will do. This aspect of God's power, his control over all things, is what we call his sovereignty. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 1, says this, from all eternity, God, from all eternity, According to his own holy and wise counsel, 
did freely and immutably, which means unchangeably, ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So the late R.C. Sproul explained God's sovereignty saying this statement that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass is not a statement that's unique to Calvinism. It's not a statement that's unique to Presbyterianism. It doesn't distinguish the Reformed tradition from other traditions. It doesn't even distinguish Christians from Jews and Muslims. This statement distinguishes distinguishes theists from atheists. If there's anything that happens in this world outside of the foreordination of God, then at whatever point out something happens outside the foreordination of God, it is therefore happening outside of the sovereignty of God outside of his control. If you want to read about God's sovereignty, Sproul writes a great book called Chosen by God. He explains sovereignty in a way that I think is really helpful. But Sproul's point is this. God is either sovereign, he's in control of all things, or he's not sovereign at all. And if God is not sovereign over everything, then he's really not God. That's the factor that separates Pharaoh from God. It's the factor, it's one of the many differences between you and God. He's sovereign. You're not. But the truth is that his power, this this God of power, a God who could completely be in control of everything, is terrifying if he is not also good. And so for the good of the people in the nation of Israel, God teaches us that his power is not simply an expression of control, it's also an expression of relationship. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land which, which they lived in as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. A covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship of the highest bond. If you were with us when we studied the book of Genesis, you remember That God revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But you also know he did explain his name, Yahweh. It's not that God didn't reveal himself to Abraham as Yahweh. But rather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only understood God to be a God who makes promises. They only understood his promises, and so they looked forward in a kind of faith to something that would be fulfilled 400 years down the road. What's God's point? They knew me to make promises. You, slaves in Egypt, will know me to be a God who fulfills those promises. I wonder if you think that Moses ever got his why questions answered. It's the kind of question that you and I often ask, isn't it? God, why did you allow this? 
God, why did you bring me to this spot? Why am I suffering? Why haven't you answered me yet? Why are you seemingly sitting quietly while I am forced to wait? What's God's answer to Moses? Well, God answers the the why question with a who answer. Why have I done this? Why have I allowed this? So that you will learn to trust who I am. So that you'll learn to trust my character. My character is what secures your salvation. So friends, frankly, if you like why questions, perhaps the better why question is why did God through Christ choose to tether himself to you? The answer to that question is for his glory and from a heart of love. So then whatever why question you might ask could always be really understood with a who answer. Who is he? Oh, he's a God of power. I see it in his sovereignty. But just as important to hurting people, you can also see it in his steadfast love, which is proven to us in Christ, God's power. Now let's look at God's promises. It's worth noticing at this moment that the Hebrew people are at rock bottom. That's quintessential Yahweh. It's exactly what he does. And and many of you, I'm sure, could testify to the fact that it wasn't until the Lord brought you to the very absolute end of yourself that you gained the ears to hear his voice. Some of you have never been to rock bottom. A passage like this says you do not need to be afraid for him to take you there. Some of you hadn't been to rock bottom in a long time. And a passage like this says you do not need to be afraid if he should take you back there. Because in whatever time or moment the Lord brings you to the end of himself, it's the moment that he's prepared to give you the ears to hear his voice. So while we're down at the bottom of the pit with the Hebrew people, let's shine a flashlight around and take a look at what we see here. First of all, the Hebrew people have basically said, we don't want any part of this deliverance. We don't believe you. Now, secondly, for the second time in his life, Moses has been rejected by the very people he wanted to help. And so now you find the one who is God's appointed liberator is disillusioned, and he's really about to check out. You remember Moses was the one who said, God, I think it would be better if you sent someone else. So you and I read this prayer, and you might come away saying, Moses was right. He's completely insufficient to deliver God's people. It's almost as if you and I are meant to read chapter 6 and conclude Moses is completely insufficient to save God's people. God's people are completely insufficient to be willing to accept the deliverance. It's precisely from that spot that the Lord speaks. And what does he say, verse 2? I am Yahweh. What does he say, verse 6? I am Yahweh. Verse 7, I am Yahweh. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord. 
Your future and your hope rests solely on his name. In fact, what he's saying is my character is the one factor that should give you assurance when you're asking these why questions. I have no idea where you are today. I have no idea what fears or concerns you have. But I know that for those who are in Christ, God continues to declare his name to you. And he says, your future is absolutely certain. Because your only hope really rests in me, in my character. Everything he said about promises hinges on this word, I. God makes his promises in seven phrases. You can look at them really quickly. Verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. Verse 8, I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore. Verse 8, I will give it to you. Scholars notice, of course, that those seven I wills are really based on four distinct promises that God makes. And those promises, which were physically true for the slaves in Egypt, are spiritually true promises for you in Christ. Now, I'm going to borrow some concepts here from another pastor. The first is this promise to free That is, he says, I'm going to liberate captives from slavery. This is the issue that the Hebrew people would have been most concerned about. We need to be rescued from our bondage. And God says, I am your deliverer. I am the one who will set you free. I wonder if you're not sitting here today going, I need to be freed from this sin and this one. And that one, and that one. What was spiritually, what was physically true in the Old Testament is spiritually true in the New. Romans 6, tells us that we have been set free from sin. Revelation 1, 5 tells us that Jesus loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. God makes this promise And though you and I do still often relive our old sin, we are not held there by that old sin. We're not bound to die in our sins. Christ says, I've actually delivered you from it. And someone might say, I don't know. It still feels like I am stuck. It's possible that you have a real addiction physical addictions. But in spite of how you feel about yourself and what work you may need to undertake in order to deal with that, let's be really clear. The Bible says you are not bound by your sins. The Bible doesn't say you will not sin anymore. It says sin no longer has the power to be your master. And then it summons you to a life of freedom for those who have been called. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. And then it summons you to live this way. Therefore, stand firm 
do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, the second promise is the promise to redeem. So to free, to redeem. Now, the word redemption is a financial term. I was first introduced to it by accident with my mother at Kroger in Brentwood as she scrolled through her coupons to redeem those coupons. They were at least partially a kind of payment. Redemption is the word that later becomes commonly used in national Israel. If a man sells himself into debt, sells himself into slavery because of his debt, his family can come and pay the price to redeem him, to buy him out and get his freedom. Now, in order for God to redeem the people in Egypt, someone must pay the price. And because this God owns these people, God sets the terms of redemption. Take a look at verse 6. God says the cost of redemption is judgment. Someone must pay to redeem the Hebrews by judgment. In this case, the Egyptians are going to pay the the price to to redeem my people. That's what verse 6 says. I will redeem them by my outstretched arm and by acts of judgment. Which points perfectly to our spiritual redemption. Someone must pay the high cost to redeem me from bondage. To redeem those in bondage in God's economy. What is the price to redeem a slave? The price is judgment. Who's going to pay for your redemption? Do you have any friends? Do you have any friends who would be interested in stepping forward and saying, I'll I'll pay, uh, uh, let the judgment fall on me. I want that one free. You don't have any friends like that. And so here's the gospel. God says, I will pay the cost of your judgment. I will supply the friend for sinners like you, and his name is Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7 says in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus paid in judgment so that you might be redeemed, purchased out to freedom. The third promise is a promise to adopt. He says in the passage, I'll take you to be my people and I'll be your God. And it's really one of the most sweetest, intimate doctrines that the gospel offers. That is adoption. Its origin goes all the way back to Genesis when God promised to be a God to Abraham and to his offspring after him. It's the reason that God calls the people in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, out of Egypt I called my son And now he goes to Moses and he says, you make sure that my people hear my words. I intend to adopt them as my own children. The promise of physical adoption is likewise true spiritually for those who are in Christ. I wonder if in America, where we live and and think as individuals, I wonder if we struggle to believe or comprehend this, this family concept of, of love. 
and from our misunderstanding, is it possible that we miss hearing the Father's tenderness to us? Friends, if you are in Christ by faith, I want you to listen to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to change the pronouns by moving from third person to first person so that it makes sense. God says, I sent forth my son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem you who were under the law so that you might receive adoption and know what it means to be my son. And because you are my son, I sent forth the spirit of my faithful son, Jesus, to dwell into your hearts. Romans 4.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you ever doubt your own salvation? Do you ever find yourself concerned, maybe I'm really not saved? The greatest comfort I can offer you is that if you did not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you would not actually be asking that question. The Holy Spirit dwells within your heart, and it is God's guarantee to you that you are his son. A final promise that God made, which was physically true for the Hebrew people and spiritually true for you, is in Christ this promise to give. Genesis 12, Abraham, or Abram, get up, go to the land that I'll show you. So Abram gets up, God takes him to the land of Canaan, and he says, to your offspring I'll give this land. Abraham came to know him as Yahweh, but then he lived the rest of his entire life anticipating a promise. All he knew was that God's going to be faithful, but he's having to look towards that land promise simply by faith. And so when God comes to Moses in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He says, you will see with your own eyes what it means that I am Yahweh, that I am a God who makes big promises and faithfully fulfills them all. Incidentally, the Bible tells us that the dirt in Canaan was always meant to point us to a better city. Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Jesus' disciples sat with him before he was betrayed and they got sad when he told them that he was going to go away. And he lifted their heads by telling them the same promise. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Likewise, the Lord has extended this promise to you of the new heavens and the new earth where you will dwell forever with God and with his faithful son Jesus and with his people. It's God's character that secures your salvation. God's power, God's promises, we close with God's people. Verses 9 through 11 is where I want to draw your attention. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. 
So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. God's children are unable to hear their father's voice. How will God's power and his promises be fulfilled if his people are unwilling to listen? Verse 9 is actually more than just a sad comment. It's a sad comment, but it has major spiritual significance. These are God's people. They are crushed under the brutal oppression of slavery. They do not have the capacity to listen. They do not have the capacity to be moved, to embrace God's promises. How are any of these people going to be saved? God's character must secure their salvation because nothing else will. So what does God do? He goes directly to the mediator. And then he tells the mediator to go directly to the oppressor. Moses to Pharaoh, which is spiritually significant because it's precisely how God saves his people from their sins. It's a picture of a better mediator under a much worse oppressor. You remember Paul? When we started our study in Exodus, I read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction. Paul says these are physical pictures of, of spiritual realities. Every person is born under slavery to sin. And because the yoke of that slavery was so severe, in sin's bondage you were crushed. So much so that you could not hear the voice of the Lord. All you could hear was the voice of your oppressor. And so the father of lies whispered these things to you. God will never save you. You belong to me. You'll spend eternity in those chains. I'm your master. God would never save the likes of you. Your destiny? You're going to repeat those same hell-worthy sins until you suffer eternally for them. And I will not let you go. Apart from Christ, you did not have the capacity to listen. You did not have the capacity to be moved by God's promises. So God spoke directly to his mediator, Jesus. And to him he said, Jesus, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. 1 Timothy 2 tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And to him, God said, Jesus, you are the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed. Hebrews 9, 15. So you see your mediator, Jesus, 
goes directly to your oppressor, Satan. And when he hangs on the cross, he says, it is finished. The Lamb of God is slain for the sins of his people. And if you love the thought and the concept of God's mediator victorious, Revelation chapter 20 tells us how the story ends. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I am Yahweh and I will save. God's character secures your salvation. Nothing else could. Let's pray.